Good morning. Excellent. Good to see a number of people already in. And we've already got a like. So thank you to the person that has already uh, liked the video. Um, I'm going to crack on uh, with this morning and uh, open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can gather together, uh, Lord God, even virtually. Um, and we just ask, Holy Spirit, that, that you come and inhabit the spaces wherever we are. Whether it's in our living room, uh, Lord, or in our bedrooms, or in that quiet place that we find in our houses. Lord God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would change us. Lord, um, life is not just about acquiring stuff. It's not just about pleasure or leisure or getting what we want. But Lord God, it's about walking with you. And it's about growing to be more like you. And God, I pray that as we look through scripture today, that it would help us do that. That at the end of this session, We'll have a better idea of what you want from us and, and what we can do about that. And Holy Spirit, we need you to achieve that in us. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Excellent. Um, so I think live and a couple more people have joined us. Um, and we're going to uh, crack on. So at the, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was this... Uh, Irish sign writer. He'd moved about a bit um, and at one point this guy Robert Noonan he uh, was in South Africa um, so uh, at a uh, young age he he uh, married um, a lady Elizabeth who became his wife um, but then she had an affair and so he divorced her um, and he had this little girl and uh, um, when the girl was around nine years old uh, him Robert and Kathleen, they moved to England. And uh, while he was in England as a single parent uh, family, um, he had this like terror of the workhouse sort of over him and his daughter. You know, he really wanted to work hard and he was always perpetually frightened that his daughter would be taken into the workhouse. You know, those workhouses that are kind of depicted in, from Victorian times, from uh, sort of the works of uh, Dickens. Uh, indeed, my own boy is uh, uh, reading something called Street Child, which, which is very graphic at how bad uh, these workhouses were. Anyway, so Robert Noonan continually worked with like the horror of the workhouse um, sort of over him. And um, in about 1910, uh, he wrote an extraordinary uh, political novel. Um, it is something to behold. Uh, and he wrote it in 1910. And wonderfully, Dom has just come in on the comments to say that she's uh, from uh, coming back from uh, Hastings. Uh, so fantastic, because this book was written in Hastings. And uh, so it doesn't give the actual name of the uh, uh, town as Hastings in the book, but it is like a fictitious town, but it's actually really about Hastings. So in 1910, this guy, Robert Noonan, writes um, this book. Um, and uh, one of my favourite authors, George, George, George Orwell, um, socialist author, uh, very uh, clear on his politics. Um, he wrote 1984, you know, have you ever heard of the term sort of uh, Big Brother or Newspeak or uh, anything like that? That's him. Um, 
Animal Farm, uh, like that short sort of pamphlet sort of criticising uh, a lot of the uh, sort of communist movements that were taken over uh, uh, by sort of totalitarian or authoritarian heads. Um, and my one of my favourite books, Down and Out in Paris in London. Um, this guy was so impressed by what Robert Noonan wrote and um, that he said it was a book that everyone should be reading. Um, and so uh, the book's called uh, The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist, which is a little bit of a tongue twister. Um, and in it, he describes the grim and desperate reality of being working class at that time in the south of England. Um, and, and, and just the horrors that he had he had to face. Uh, it's an incredible piece of fiction. As you read it, your kind of blood boils at the entitlement of the privilege. You know, the people at the top of the pile are doing really well. And it's perpetuated, their, their wealth is perpetuated by the degradation of the poor. Um, it's a bit like some of these companies who are doing who are doing really well, lots of profits, and then at the slightest opportunity, they'll sack loads of people, not look after them, uh, and uh, just abandon them uh, uh, because you know uh, that is where the profits uh, lie. And uh, what makes it worse in Robert Noonan's uh, book is that um, who helps this along because it's not just so the evil capitalists there um hypocritical christians make a, a big thing you know they they talk about just how work is important and um they dismiss anyone uh, uh that doesn't work uh, uh sort of 12 hours a day um and there are these counsellors, you know, these people that are supposed to be served the community, they're corrupt and, and uh, you can bribe them. Um, and they keep this abusive system ticking over. And these people, these people that should be checking it and saying, you know what, this is wrong. Um, they keep it going. And so I want to listen to a paragraph near the beginning of the book. And uh, in it, one of the main characters, uh, Frank Owen. He observes that not only is it the sort of rich people that are exploiting the poor, not only is it the people that should be checking the system that are not doing it, but there's more to it than that. Um, I would say turn in your Bibles, but it's turn uh, in the ragged trousers of philanthropist. Um, and it says this. Owen worked on in a disheartened, sullen way. He felt like a beaten dog. All his life it had been the same. Incessant work under similar, more or less humiliating conditions and with no more result than just being able to avoid starvation. And the future, as far as he could see, was as hopeless as the past. Darker, for there would surely come a time, if he lived long enough, when he would be unable to work any more. He thought of his child. Was he to be a slave and a drudge to all his life also? It would be better for the boy to die now. As Owen thought of his child's future, there sprung up within him a feeling of hatred and fury against the majority of his fellow workmen. They were the enemy. Those who not only quietly submitted like so many cattle to the existing state of things, but actually defended it and opposed and ridiculed any suggestion to alter it. They were the real oppressors, the men who spoke of themselves as the likes of us, who, having lived in poverty and degradation all their lives, considered that what had been good enough for them was good enough for their children, so that they had the cause of bringing them into existence. 
he hated and despised them because they calmly saw their children condemned to hard labour and poverty for life and deliberately refused to make any effort to secure for them better conditions than those they had themselves. It was because they were indifferent to the fate of their children that he would be unable to secure a natural and human life for his. It was their apathy or active opposition that made it impossible to establish a better system of society under which those who did their fair share of the world's work would be honoured and rewarded. Instead of helping to do this, they abased themselves and grovelled before their oppressors and compelled and taught their children to do the same. They were the people who were really responsible for the continuation of the present system. So the protagonist, Owen, he longs for his own son to prosper, but his peers, those that he works alongside, are devoid of any obvious vision. You know, they, they just consign their own children to the fate that they are enduring too. They don't even have any mercy on their children saying, you know, I don't want you to suffer as I have. They simply use their kids to maintain this status quo. I think it is universally true that our personal philosophies, our prejudices and our politics are most clear and transparent when they involve the generations to come. I think our children show what our hearts are like. I think for some in Bubush, authority and responsibility are dirty words and their children are taught to rebel and shirk and kick out from an early age. Others, they have kind of failed at life, they feel, and so they push their children extremely to make up for their own lost opportunities and they live their own lives through the achievements of their children and both have got to be wrong. Let us now listen to a moment in scripture where children again are a great prism which clearly expose the values of those involved. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. You should have, if you've been following our Bible reading plan, sort of read this during the week. Um, so it says this in Mark chapter 10 verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and he blessed them. We are told uh, that folks were bringing their kids to Jesus. Why? Why were they bringing their kids to Jesus, even like their healthy ones? Well, Jesus was a religious teacher. You know, he was uh, a part um, of this landscape of uh, men that were trying to be godly. Um, and he, he was rising in fame and importance. You know, his name uh, increasingly had resonance 
at the time. He was a guy that the wider population recognised as being used and anointed by God. Here was someone that seemed to be different to the other teachers. You know, even the Pharisees would uh, say, you know, by what authority do you teach? You seem to have something new. And Jesus's tight connection with his heavenly father meant that people believed he could be a means of divine blessing. And they saw it in the miracles and the healings and the uh, uh, um, exorcisms and all the other things. And they were like, you know, this guy can talk to God and on my behalf and perhaps he could bless my child. A parallel uh, can be kind of found in Genesis chapter 27. Uh, we have this patriarch, Isaac. Um, he's nearing death. And um, he is the long promised son of Abraham. Uh, he is the one, you know, that uh, um, was going to be sacrificed, but uh, uh, sort of rescued at the last minute. He is the carrier of God's plan of worldwide salvation. You know, uh, God promised that he will bless the world through uh, uh, his kids. And so Isaac was the uh, the container for this promise. Um, and uh, he was going to convey God's divine pleasure at a touch, at a blessing at the end of his life. And we find uh, at the end of his life, Rebecca, Jacob and Esau kind of vying for this blessing, vying for this commendation vying for this request for God's favor and all knew it has value so of course with this kind of religious memory of uh, important people blessing of religious people blessing of spiritual people blessing of godly people blessing um, the Palestinian men and women in the first century approach Jesus they want the same favor they want the same preference for their kids but I think there is slightly more because Jesus's history is um, a little bit different, probably a lot different to the religious teachers of the time. Because I think uh, while the religious teachers don't obviously have um, huge amounts of time uh, for especially young kids, Jesus is very different. Um, and Mark alone tells us this. We find in Mark 5, Jesus raises back to life the young daughter of a synagogue ruler. Someone very precious who he loves and Jesus breathes back life into her. And in Mark chapter 7, uh, we have a uh, tenacious Gentile mother. You know, she's sort of put off by Jesus, but she presses in. And this miracle worker rescues her own troubled little girl. And in Mark chapter 9, we find another disturbed child. And this time it's a son. And again, he is wonderfully freed from spiritual oppression. And we find these moments where Jesus obviously has peculiar time for children. Um, and, in, and in a time when there would have been high infant mortality rate and uh, um, all sorts of low expectations of children surviving, Jesus steps in and reverses the trend. And so it seems inevitable in Mark chapter 10 that the parents would come to Jesus to go, we know you have a reputation of loving children. We want you to bless our kids. We want you to have compassion on them and, 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 and speak uh, love over them. And uh, while the other religious leaders may not have any time, we know you, Jesus. We know who you love. Let me read something else. Um, so this is Alistair McGrath's Christianity's Dangerous Idea. 
um, book. And I just want to read a, a, a couple of excerpts. It says this. So we're talking about Martin Luther. Martin Luther began his critique of the church by setting out one of the greatest themes of the Reformation, the democratization of faith. He used the German term Gemeindet, which means community, to refer to the church so as to emphasize that the church is fundamentally a gathering of believers. It is not a divinely ordained institution with sacred powers and authority vested exclusively in its clergy. I wonder if you believe that. Fundamentally a gathering of believers. All believers, men and women, by virtue of their baptism, are priests. That's quite a clear idea of what church is. So he goes on. Luther insisted that every Christian has the right to interpret the Bible and to raise concerns about any aspect of the church's teaching or practice that appears to be inconsistent with the Bible. There is no spiritual authority distinct from or superior to ordinary Christians who can impose certain readings of the Bible on the church. The right to read and interpret the Bible is the birthright of all Christians. At this stage, Luther clearly believed that the Bible was sufficiently clear for ordinary Christians to be able to read and understand it. Following through on his democratising agenda, Luther insisted that all believers have the right to read the Bible in a language they can understand and to interpret its meaning for themselves. The church is thus held accountable to its members for its interpretation of its sacred text and is open to challenge at every point. I don't know what you think about church and church authority, but Luther had a very clear idea that ran against what his time thought of it. The significance of Luther's point can hardly be overlooked by insisting that it had a divinely ordained monopoly on biblical interpretation. The medieval church had declared itself to be above criticism on biblical ground. So the church at Luther's time said, you know, the Bible says that the church uh, and the and the pope are perfect you know what whatever they say uh goes and you can't question it and Luther says no the god's word is perfect and and people can interpret it but the church isn't an institution that can declare what the bible says uh so no external critic had the authority to interpret scripture and thus to apply it to criticise the church's doctrines or practices. You couldn't be outside the church and then criticise inward. Luther's response was to empower the laity, you know, the, 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 the rank and file Christians. He was to empower the laity as interpreters of the Bible and to hold the church accountable to its people for what it taught. The pastor is accountable to the people that he serves and if they were not satisfied with the outcome they as laity had the right to demand that a reforming council be convened to address their concerns Luther he was a strong guy 
At the beginning of the 16th century, the prevailing European Christian culture had acquired various practices, which, let me be frank, were abuses of power. Martin Luther came up against this medieval church and he called a spade a spade. He said there is injustices going on all over the place. All over the place you are interpreting scripture and saying no one can argue. You are saying that your way is the only way. And he said there is a, uh, a all believers are priests and can read the Bible. And we should be able to come to agreement rather than it's not just you telling us. It's always good to uh, remind ourselves of Luther's check, of the Reformation's check on church life. To be reminded of the democracy and accountability embedded in the gospel. That we are saved together and we are walking together. It is not... Elam tells you what to do. It is not Kevin tells you what to do. It is what the Bible says is true. In our passage today, I don't know whether you noticed it, but we have a, an abuse of power. It's quite small scale in some ways, but it is still poisonous and still hateful. The disciples saw themselves as gatekeepers to Jesus. You know, they would let through the ones they like and they would keep at arm's length those that didn't. And they decided, these disciples, that Children couldn't come in. That children couldn't come and bother Rabbi Jesus. Did Jesus gently correct them? Did he put his arms round the shoulders of Peter and John and say, Hey lads, you know, let them through, it's okay. The, uh, the message translation says this. Jesus was irate and he let them know it. I think a word like incandescent would be appropriate here. So I hope you get this picture of Jesus's absolute intolerance of the misuse of authority. That when people are put in charge, when people have the uh, responsibility to serve strategically, there is an accountability uh, there uh, uh, that it should weigh in some ways heavily. And this, I think, is a good moment to reflect on church authority, to reflect on how we see church authority, how we see church uh, authority in our local fellowship, in our sort of national church. And as we see um, church authority elsewhere, I read recently and I was shocked by this, um, a word by a pastor in the States. And uh, basically it was a long rambling sort of uh, so-called prophecy and it said essentially you couldn't really be a believer if you didn't fate if you didn't vote for the politician that this pastor favored that is manipulation and abuse of power these things should cause us to be irate because they are an abuse of power they go far beyond what scripture says and they need us to, uh, and it's the responsibility of all Christians. It is not just the uh, priests that are in charge of church. It is not just the, the vicars and the pastors. It is not the elders. But it's every believer is a priest and has responsibility for this thing called church. 
all local churches are led by fallible and fallen individuals. There's no exceptions. Even in God's exalted town of Crawley, we are all just muddling along. And leaders are no less susceptible to confusion and error than anyone else. Hopefully, they're better at sort of dealing with it in many ways. But still, um, we need to be aware that uh, abuses of power happen constantly. So first of all, let me encourage each of us to pray for our leaders. Pray for our leadership team in Bubish. Sam and I and Tim and Rachel and Peter. Let us pray for um, the other leaders in Crawley Town. And uh, uh, perhaps sort of David Campbell, our regional guy. Um, and sort of uh, Tim and... Uh, um, Jamie uh, as well and um, pray for sort of Chris Cartwright who sort of runs uh, Elim as well. These guys need our prayers. Secondly, if we have confessed Jesus as Lord and Saviour and Luther would also say you need to get baptised as well. We have the Holy Spirit in our lives and this means that each of us are well equipped to recalibrate the spiritual activity of our fellowship. All of us are priests and have it within us to help the church. If you are part of Elin Bubus, you are there to help us. We are not there simply to serve you things. It is healthy and right to look at our fellowship, to look at this church that we are part of, and make sure that we are in alignment with scripture. And it's all of our responsibility. You know, God won't say, oh, did you sing loud enough in worship? He will say, what part did you play in making sure your church uh, was in accordance with scripture? Sometimes a quiet word with a leader will do. You know, Kevin, you are teaching uh, annihilationism there or you are uh, uh, entering a heresy, or um, you know what, we are inadequate in this thing, and, and, and sometimes that is enough. But sometimes we have to get our hands dirty, and we have to take up the new ministry ourselves. You know, uh, I am only uh, uh, one man, and uh, we've only got sort of five leaders and a limited budget, uh, and sometimes when you see something falling short, it is up to you to take up a new ministry yourselves. I wonder what questions you ask yourself about our fellowship. Does our fellowship neglect a group of people in our midst? Is there a group that is overlooked? Do we give undue prominence to some sections of our congregation and not to others? I mean, during lockdown, we've been good at reaching out to the adults and those that will be on Zoom. But what about the kids? What have we done for them? What have we done for those that are offline, those that struggle with the internet? How have we ministered to them? I'm becoming increasingly aware of the, the congregation that are failing to engage with these YouTube conversations. This is a good one. This is uh, perhaps something I shouldn't say. Does it bother you that our leaders in Elin Bubush aren't elected? Is that on your radar? And what do you think about it? Uh, I haven't been elected. You didn't 
uh, ask me to be your uh, pastor. I am it. And uh, when sort of we brought Rachel and Tim, they weren't voted on. What do you think about how we run our leadership? What about um, our format? You know, we meet on a Sunday morning. Does that systematically alienate another group? Is there some group that we are not caring for, that we are uh, uh, um, being unhelpful towards? Do we preach the gospel? Do I preach it? Do the other people up the front preach it? Do we give the Spirit time? Do we have time for the Holy Spirit in our meetings, for prophecies and uh, um, tongues and interpretation of tongues? When was the last time you heard an interpretation of tongues in our fellowship? Are we good at being loving and generous? We may be good at having meetings, but are we good at being loving and generous? Are we loving and generous individually? And is the church giving out more than it spends on wages and PA equipment? I too believe in the priesthood of all believers. And I welcome, or I try to welcome, you know, sometimes I can be a bit prickly, uh, but I try and welcome help in honouring Jesus in every aspect of a community. Try and listen to someone when they say, you know what, I think we're going in the wrong direction there. Um, it is a difficult conversation to have, but we want Jesus' bride to be pure, don't we? Don't expect church to serve you up meetings on a silver platter. That is not the church's function. You are part of the church. And we need to all own this fellowship and help get our church to look like a beautiful bride, like that beautiful group of people at the end of Acts chapter 2. That's what I want. And uh, I don't want Jesus to get irate because there is abuses of leadership in our fellowship. Finally, oh, I'm doing good for time. Finally, let us enjoy Jesus's irate reaction to his disciples. Let us smile at it. Not because it humiliated them, and I'm sure they were sort of cut down by it. But Jesus got irate so that infants, toddlers and youth could come to enjoy Jesus' company. How marvellous is that? How wonderful. Jesus gets irate so that the little one, so that the Sunday school could come and mob him. Now, we live in a culture... Uh, where a lot of effort has been expended to protect children. Uh, benefits are given to those with kids. I'm in receipt of sort of a, a benefit for children and tax credits and stuff. Um, and we've got lots of laws to try and protect them. Um, but they're still readily badly treated. Um, one of the uh, first things to go when the council uh, cuts budgets... It's not your bin collections, but it's the youth centre. And it's the upkeep of the parks um, and the uh, green spaces are being taken over. Uh, me and my boys were enjoying the uh, park yesterday uh, um, with sort of uh, rockets and frisbees and Nerf guns. Uh, but these places are being cut down to make room for more houses. And kids don't have this you can't monetize them they're not sort of commercial entities and so their voices are often silenced they're often treated harshly you just hear how 
parents speak sometimes to their kids. They are neglected. We've seen kids around, even in Bubush, that don't seem to see their parents from one day to the next, but sort of feral and are manipulated. Everything from the adverts on the TV to buy sugary cereals uh, to uh, make them feel bad, to do what we want. For those without children themselves, it's easy to push them to the sides. They're the parents' responsibility or the Sunday school teacher's responsibility or someone else's responsibility. And it's easy to see them as noisy and it's easy to see them as messy and inconvenient. You know, wouldn't it be better if the congregation was just adults? Jesus says no. He welcomes them in. But in our society, it's often children are not welcomed into the middle of things as they should be. Wonderfully, delightfully, Jesus embraces these snotty, fidgety, talkative humans who don't know the rules about nose pickings and polite courtesy. The uh, different pictures of children around Jesus is just uh, entrancing. Um, if you're in our discipleship group midweek, you'll know we've been going through this amazing uh, series called The Chosen, which sort of looks at Jesus's life from a, a wonderfully new angle. And uh, all of us who watched it on Tuesday were just in trance as Jesus hung out with these group of kids. And, and he just met them in such a way that you're like, I would love to have met this man. I am so glad that Jesus is in my life. Instead of being irritated by the kids, as the disciples were, he was irritated by the adults. And I think Mark sort of um, constructs these sentences very deliberately. We are, uh, I love these moments in Jesus's life where he proves the truly topsy-turvy kingdom he is ushering in. Here, the adults are getting cross at the kids and here Jesus is going, now let kids be kids. I'm getting cross at you, adults. And the first simple lesson we get from Jesus' welcoming of these kids is that we should engage with children. They are carriers of God's image. We honour Jesus by welcoming them in and paying attention to them, by talking to them, by allowing them to witter on about whatever's on their mind. We need to talk to them about their struggles, about their dramas, listen to their uh, sometimes incomprehensible trains of thought we need to hear their passions for Roblox and Minecraft and Lego and skateboarding and football. Secondly, there is here, I think, an obvious call to realise we may appreciate children. We may be really good at welcoming them in. But are there other groups we marginalise that we forget, that we push to the sidelines? What about the old? Are we good at looking out for them, appreciating them? Do the old feel in the middle of things? Or perhaps because they can't come to everything or don't have big pockets or, uh, you know, don't love the things that we do? Do we marginalise them? Or the poor, we feel awkward around them. We feel 
guilty and so neglect them. What about the sick? Get tired of them talking about how poorly they are. Or the neurodiverse, a great term that just covers all sorts of different things. And so uh, a parent of an autistic uh, child, um, I'm wondering whether um, uh, uh, Carlitos has got hold of uh, Bianca's phone because I've just had a very strange text. Thanks, Carlitos, if that was you. I appreciate that. Yep. Thank you, Carlitos. Perfect timing in the sermon about kids getting a text message from a child that said, um, what does it say? Gruffness. Um, gruffness vergurded. Fantastic. So perfect. Um, there was a parent of an autistic child um, recently and they were, I was talking to them and they were just saying um, that we were helpful. You know, they weren't. Um, uh, uh, we didn't. Uh, act badly towards them we didn't badger them uh, and we didn't neglect them uh, but it'd be nice if we were better at it perhaps we need someone who's familiar with neurodiverse people and can teach us how to behave in a way that welcomes them in um, wouldn't it be good if uh, we got a lot more feedback like that where Google reviews was full of people saying, you know what, I am different. I am often forgotten and on the sidelines, but in Ian Bubush, I am appreciated. These guys go out their way to make sure that there is no category that we don't love. Good to see some laughing faces um, on the YouTube uh, feed. Um, thirdly and finally of this finally section. I want us to see that children accept generosity easily. Uh, my children, when I give them stuff, they don't question things. Why? How? Why are you giving me this? What, what responsibility have I got back to you? Am I, uh, do I owe you? This very same attitude and stance is how Jesus says we should accept our salvation. We don't earn it. We don't rise to it. Jesus doesn't look into the future and say, oh, you'll be a good Christian, I'm going to choose you. We are to accept salvation as a child, graciously and simply and easily. May we see God has lavished on us through salvation his love. And may our response be delight and pleasure May not be, oh, I have to do all these good things to keep God happy. No, God has saved you. Oh, woe is me, you know, suddenly I've failed him again. Salvation is a free gift. Enjoy it. May it light up your face. May it cause you to uh, um, get out of bed in the morning with a sense of anticipation. I want to finish uh, by reading um, a uh, a couple of pages from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, normally, I'd say, you know, parents get it. It's a great but I don't think anyone wouldn't be blessed by getting the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you haven't got a copy, um, so I reckon the NIV is what we use at church. The Message is just in a fantastic devotional book. I love reading it. Um, and Jesus Storybook. If you ever sort of wonder, you know, you get can't see for the woods to the trees sometimes the Bible. You know, you get to a uh, genealogy with all the names and it's just like, what is this? And suddenly you read the Jesus Storybook Bible and you go, oh, 
It's like this beautiful childish summary that I always enjoy reading. So I'm going to close uh, with reading from this. And it says this. Friends of little children. Jesus' friends were arguing. Who was the most important helper in God's kingdom? They wanted to know. I am, James said. No, you're not, said Peter. I am. Nonsense, Matthew said. I am the cleverest. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, no, I am. am too. This silliness went on and on like that for some time. You see, Jesus' friends had started thinking they had to do something to make themselves special to Jesus. How many adults feel like that? They have to feel they have to be special to Jesus. That if they were the cleverest or the nicest or something, Jesus would like them best. But they had forgotten something. Something God had been teaching his people all through the years. That no matter how clever you are, or how good you are, or how rich you are, or how nice you are, or how important you are, none of it makes any difference. Just soak that up for a moment. Because God's love is a gift. Everyone say gift. It's impossible to do over the internet, but I would do that if we were together. It's free. All you have to do is reach out your hand and take it. So while Jesus' friends were arguing, some people who knew all about getting gifts, in fact, you might say they were gift experts, had come to see Jesus. Who were they? They were little children. Thanks for the gifts uh, on the uh, comments. Much appreciated. It's almost like we're together in the barn. Jesus' helpers tried to send the kids away. Jesus doesn't have time for you, they said. He's too tired. How many times have I said that as a dad? But they were wrong. Jesus always had time for children. Don't ever send them away, Jesus said. Bring the little ones to me. Now, if you'd been there, what do you think? Would you have had to line up quietly to see Jesus? There's some great artistic license here. Do you think Jesus would have asked you how good you'd been before he'd given you a hug? Would you have had to be on your best behaviour? Would you have had to get dressed up? Would you have had not to have speak until you're spoken to? Some great questions, aren't they? What would it look like to line up to see Jesus? Or would you have done just what these children did? They ran straight up to Jesus and they let him pick you up and they let him pick you up in his arms and swing you and kiss you and hug you and then sit you on his lap and listen to your stories and your chats. Don't children love chats? Rittering on about all sorts of things. You see, Jesus loved children and they knew they didn't need to do anything special for Jesus to love them. All they needed to do was to run into his arms. And so that's just what they did. Well, after all the laughing and games, Jesus turned to his helpers and said, no matter how big you grow, and this is a word for every single one of us this morning, no matter how big you grow, never grow up so much that you lose your child's heart full of trust in God. Be like these children. They are the most important in my kingdom. Let's close in prayer. 
God, what a great passage. I thank you that Jesus welcomed the little kids and rebuked the disciples. Lord God, we just pray to respond well to this story. God, we pray that we would own our fellowship and our place in the church. God, we would own the fact that uh, leadership is accountable, that church is accountable, that the we have our part to play in forming what our fellowship looks like. God, may heresy and wrong thinking and bullying and abuse, may it be checked and stopped. May we get irate with it. And Lord God, may beauty and love and generosity uh, just be part of it. Lord God, rise in our hearts. Good questions to ask of our fellowship. Lord, um, and uh, we thank you for the fact that you welcomed in the kids. And Lord God, I pray that we would be good at loving children in our midst, at making room for them and listening to them, not making them just sort of be little adults, but enjoy their company as kids and listening to their little chats and uh, making them know they're loved. And uh, Lord God, this is really hard time for them um, as they can't see their friends much, as they've been... Uh, excluded from so much and you know sort of uh, our church hasn't served them uh, um, as much as I would like uh, Lord God I, I, I just pray um, that you would help us uh, look out for them and look out for all those that are marginalized and pushed to the edges and uh, Lord God I, I pray that um, you would just help us love salvation that we would receive it eagerly as a gift that we wouldn't imagine that we have to make ourselves nicer or gooder to get your attention lord i pray that we may appreciate you and your gift with the simplicity of a child god i pray this in jesus name amen amen